Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. We have two parties, and it's kind of important that both of them be moderately responsible. It would be bad for the country to have one that is simply nativist and authoritarian. And I mean, we can't be sure that they'll always lose. We can't be sure that they won't affect the behavior of others, including others not in their party, that they won't degrade all the standards of politics. So I'm with you. It's a crisis. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. In Episode 7, I sit down with Bill Kristol, conservative commentator, political analyst, and founder of The Weekly Standard. Lately, Bill has been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump. He sat down with me to talk about the current state of the Republican Party, how it got there, and his bipartisan push for political decency. Bill Crystal, welcome to Burn the Boats. You, of course, served in multiple Republican administrations. You founded the Weekly Standard, which for decades served as the intellectual standard bearer for the conservative movement. Of course, it is <laughs> extinct, uh, which might be a metaphor for the conservative movement that you helped lead, uh, and I'll be sure to ask you about that. But to start off, uh, you used to be such a reliable sparring partner for people like me, your political opposites. And now on the most significant matters of the day, uh, whether it's preserving the constitutional order or standing up to tyrants, not just abroad but here at home, or defending democratic norms, we're on the same side. Uh, the difference being I didn't have to abandon a political party to get here. How does that feel? Look, I, I think I've got the same principles I've held for really my whole adult life. I mean, I have worked with Democrats before many times on many issues, especially in foreign policy, where there's often been a kind of bipartisanship. I remember when we started the Weekly Standard in 1995, Bob Cade and I wrote an editorial two, three months in supporting President Clinton's intervention in Bosnia. Probably was in accord with more Democrats at that time than Republicans, who already were showing some signs of this kind of Pat Buchanan, America first, you know, let's not intervene abroad just for the sake of saving liberal democracy or preventing, you know, ethnic cleansing in Europe or whatever. And uh, I remember getting a lot of cancellations from people saying, I didn't subscribe to the Weekly Standard to read editorials defending Bill Clinton. So I've been through minor versions of this before, but obviously this is a fundamentally different moment when the entire, almost the entire Republican Party has been captured by Donald Trump, who's uh, both, in my view, uh, lacks the character and judgment to be a good president, and also just on a whole bunch of fundamental public policies, maybe foreign policy as much as anything, I really can't support. So, uh, yeah, so I'm uh, with the Democrats a little more than the Republicans these days, I guess. As long as they're Trump Republicans, that's going to be the case. Your colleague, John Podoritz, described the extinction of the Weekly Standard as intellectual murder. And I would love to tease that out a bit, especially the 
the idea that one of the intellectual standard bearers, maybe the last one of the Republican Party, has been snuffed out in large part because of its resistance to Trumpism. Let me ask you to validate that first, and, and then I want to build on the question. I think being opposed to Trump and being kind of unwilling to sort of accommodate Trump, as so many others who started off opposed to him have done, and I'm not challenging their motives. They thought, well, we're getting some good things in policy out of this, and the things I don't like maybe are less important. We really weren't, most of us, willing to make that accommodation. We called it as we saw it. And look, the owners are free not to own us anymore, and then they're free to close us down. So I miss the Weekly Standard. We have the bulwark. I think there are plenty of opportunities in this day and age for people to get their voices heard. So I don't feel at all deprived. I don't want to complain about it. I think we had a very good run, and people can read the articles that were there, but both political and foreign policy, but also cultural. And I'm proud of what we did for a couple of decades. But the Republican establishment does seem to have banished voices like yours to the periphery. And what fascinates me about that is that while a lot of commentators have written about the moral rot within the party, and you described it as accommodation, but the the complicity in Trump's outrages for the, the small gains in terms of judges or, or whatever policies are worth that compromise is often described as moral acquiescence. That's one thing. It's the intellectual rot that fascinates me because I think that's a different thing altogether. When you have moral compromise, there are ways to walk back from that. I mean, it's why we have the rituals of penance, not just in faith traditions, but in society. You can make amends for moral compromise, but when you hollow out the intellectual center of a movement, is there any getting it back? You know, I, I sort of disagree with you on that. I think the moral side of it, for me, is more offensive because, yeah, you can make penance, but at the end of the day, a moral failing is probably more fundamental than an intellectual failing. People can disagree with me on foreign policy and with the Bush and McCain views on foreign policy. They can be for a less robust free trade. I, I think they're wrong, and I think they are taking the party down and intellectually ultimately a kind of bankrupt path. So I don't disagree with you that it's worth being very worried about. Having said that, for me, the core is the utter collapse of moral standards and people who knew better really did know better three or four years ago. And two years ago, sort of knew better and we're kind of going along for the time being, but we're still holding up some resistance. The degree to which they've just capitulated and are now pretending that behavior that would have been totally unacceptable three or four years ago is now not just acceptable, it's sort of great because, you know, Trump's really showing them, you know, and he's really sticking it to them. And we're not going to condemn him when he makes fun of Debbie Dingell, who's herself a member of Congress, but also the widow of the great congressman, John Dingell from Michigan, I think the longest serving member of the House ever, perhaps, and a World War II veteran and really an impressive fellow when he just sort of stands up there in Michigan and ridicules them both and makes clear that he thinks the reason he as president ordered flags to fly at half-mast when Congressman Dingell died was it was somehow transactional, it was a deal, and, and that Debbie Dingell shouldn't therefore vote to impeach him if she thinks that's the right thing. It's so revealing about his character. And the fact that almost no one, I've noticed a few members of Congress, you know, tweeted and said to Debbie Dingell, who's their colleague, you know, that was unfortunate what the president said. But no one has stood up and just condemned the president and said, what does this show about your character? So for me, that's really fundamental. But part of that is a matter of intellect. You describe these policy disagreements, which I don't think really capture the depth of the intellectual crisis. It feels like the right is facing this epistemic challenge in not even being able to discern 
truth anymore. You're not arguing about policy. You're arguing about what's real and what is not. That doesn't come from misunderstanding the truth. That comes from not caring about the truth. There you go. Okay. That comes, as Gary Kasparov has said, from wanting almost to discredit the notion of the, of truth so you can just follow Trump and ignore that the facts are different from what he says. So I'm agreeing that it's a very deep crisis. I mean, in a way, it's almost a deeper crisis. If people go off on the wrong path, you show them, hey, climate change is happening and here's a lot of data and maybe they come back to the real path after a little bit of a you know wake-up call, so to speak. Once you sort of decide that data doesn't matter, facts don't matter, decency doesn't matter, you're in very dangerous waters. So I am in total agreement that it is a real crisis of the Republican Party, a crisis of conservatism, kind of a crisis for America because, you know, we have two parties and it's kind of important that both of them be moderately responsible. It would be bad for the country to have one that is simply nativist and authoritarian and and just kind of a cult-like follower of this guy, Donald Trump. And, and that's not a good thing. I mean, we can't be sure that they'll always lose. We can't be sure that they won't affect the behavior of others, including others not in their party, that they won't degrade all the standards of politics. So I'm with you. It's a crisis. You mentioned climate change, which I think is a, a very helpful lens to begin to understand this abandonment of reason. Is the anti-science trajectory of the modern Republican Party, the celebration of ignorance itself, cynical and intentional and merely a tactic to win over certain constituencies, certain members of the electorate? Or do you feel as if the party leadership itself is buying into an anti-science agenda, is itself reveling in this celebration of ignorance that seems to be so resonant with the base these days. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to distinguish those two sometimes. And obviously, there are different people who are, some are more cynical and will say one thing in private and another in public. Others are true believers in some doctrine or faith that's not based on facts or evidence, you know. I would imagine you still have these friendships. So give give us a sense of the ratio. Is it skewing now towards the true believer side Or can we hope in a post-Trump era that the Republican Party will once again be able to behave rationally? I don't have as many of those friendships anymore as you might think. So that's that's what, so I'm not sure I'm the best person to judge this. And I really I really don't know how to judge it. Again, I come back in a way this is our earlier discussion, which is an interesting question. What's worse, to be a true believer in something that's false or to be a cynical proponent and and justifier and rationalizer of that kind of true believers prejudices or instincts? I think the true believers in a funny way can wake up and say, Oh, I guess I was wrong. But once you've gotten down this path of being willing to rationalize things that you know aren't true, I mean, that that's not a leadership that can come back. That's a leadership that has to go away, in my view. You know, for people like me, still fight the fight in the Republican Party. There's a primary coming up. There's questions of impeachment and, and or the Senate trial. You know, there's a whole year here to try to see whether the party might sort of snap out of its captivity to Trump. But I, I do worry that it's not going to be that easy to snap it out of that captivity. And my colleague, Jonathan Last, wrote a terrific piece over at The Bulwark a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, even if Trump loses, it's not obvious that Trumpism loses. It's not obvious. Trump doesn't go away. All of Trump's acolytes don't go away. What people have said over the last year or two or three don't disappear down some memory hole. And maybe the party just you know, figures, well, we lost one presidential race, but you know what, if we can be more, uh, you know, more clever form of Trumpist, get a younger standard bearer or whatever, you know, wait for a recession when the Democrats take the presidency, 
Trumpism can come back. So I am pretty worried that we end up with a Trumpy party on the right, which is bad for the country. Do you seriously believe that the Republican primary is going to be an actual contest? No, no. It's just symbolically, it would be good to have 20, 25, 30% of Republicans in some states show that they're not simply on board Trump. Even if half of them then end up voting for Trump in the general, it establishes a little distance. And it also, frankly, would help the Democrats in, in November to have had some percentage of Republicans sort of peeled off a first time from Trump. It's, it's easier to get someone to vote a second time against a candidate than if, the, if you're asking them to do it for the first time in November. Sure. How far does your never-Trump commitment extend? Would it actually compel you to vote for, for Elizabeth Warren? Does it depend on who the Democratic nominee is, or has the, the offense to your principles been so great from Trump that it doesn't matter? I mean, so the offense of Trump leads me to say I won't vote for Trump. Uh, voting for a Democrat obviously is different. I, most of the Democrats I would think are, uh, I do think, are much uh, much less dangerous than Donald Trump. And some of them, a couple of them might actually be pretty good presidents, uh, Biden, Buttigieg, and I'd be fine with that. Elizabeth Warren, something like that gets to be a little bit of a closer call. I think uh, analytically, I would make this argument, the first term of a liberal Democratic president, even if he or she is much more liberal than I would like, is going to be less dangerous than a second term of Donald Trump. I mean, a second term of Donald Trump, people have not really internalize this, I don't think, how dangerous that would be. If he gets away with, he's impeached, but then he's not convicted, then he's reelected. You know, everyone's been saying since impeachment that, oh, well, it's a black mark on him. He'll never recover from that. I don't believe that for a minute. If he gets away with a sham trial in the Senate, quick, you know, acquittal and exculpation, as he'll put it, and then gets reelected, the impeachment just becomes a tiny little footnote to his first term. And he's a guy who got reelected. He's a guy who got reelected despite an impeachment. He'll be emboldened. The party will be 110%, you know, in with him. If you think Trumpism and many of his views and his character traits and the way he thinks of the presidency as authoritarianism, all of that, if you think that's dangerous, it'll be a heck of a lot more dangerous in 2021 if he's reelected than it is today. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. You focus much, if not most, of your ire on Trump, which is probably right, but there has to be an acknowledgement that political market forces are at work here, and he's responding to a market demand, as is his party. Do you have a, a reaction to that, assuming you agree with at least part of it, that the rot goes well beyond Trump, that he's really the symptom? I think he's both a symptom and a cause. They've always been nativists, they've always been bigots, they've always been elements of the Republican Party that were anywhere from disagreeable to really worth condemning. And a lot of us did condemn them. And in fact, Pat Buchanan ran and he got 25% of the vote in some primaries mm -hmm. in 92 and 96. And I, people like me were kind of appalled. Ron Paul got 25% of the vote, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 20% in Iowa in 2008. But Ron Paul never got close to the nomination. I don't think they even let him speak at the convention. Buchanan did speak in 92 to some bad effect, but then was 
out of the party by 99, 2000. So I think it was a party that had problematic elements, as many parties going to have with, you know, half the country with it, but was able to keep them mostly under control. I mean, maybe a little less under control than I thought at the time, but maybe I should have seen it coming more. I, I plead guilty to that, I suppose, if I didn't. But so I think there was rot. In a way, there's always rot, though, right? And it's one very, very different world to have Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan as your nominees, with Donald Trump running around being a birther, but no one taking him seriously, no one supporting that who's respectable. So that's okay. That's life in a big, messy democracy. You have two parties, and each party will have at different times and different ways on its fringes disreputable people. They are sometimes tolerated a little too much because it's useful to do so, but you know, but basically kept in check. That's very different from once he became the nominee and then once he became president above all. The degree to which he's not just a symptom but is a cause goes way, way up. Presidents are powerful. And you can have a lot of bad demagoguery. You can have a lot of nativism. You can have a lot of bigotry. And you can have a Joe McCarthy and a George Wallace and Pat Buchanan, as I mentioned. And, you know, they do some damage. I don't mean to minimize any of that. And they need to be resisted. But at the end of the day, they don't define the politics. They don't take over a party. They don't accelerate or, or intensify the bad forces that they're playing off, the anxieties and the prejudices and so forth. When you have a president doing that for three years now, it makes things much, much, much worse. So I think he's both a symptom, but now it's a symptom that's become also a cause of a real uh, crisis almost in American democracy, I think. You say you perhaps should have seen it coming, but do you accept any more responsibility than that uh, beyond just the passive lack of anticipation. I mean, your your support for Sarah Palin is something I point to. Well, I would totally quarrel with that. Sarah Palin ran as John McCain's vice president. That was an attempt to bring populism within the fold. She turned out to be a very flawed person. I didn't know her well. And I thought that was a way to channel populism. That turned out to be wrong. It was a bad judgment of her. But what Palin actually ran on in 2008 was McCain's agenda. She wasn't an isolationist. She wasn't anti-immigration. So I take a little bit, maybe we were too tolerant. I was personally a little too tolerant, if you want to use that word, of the Tea Party types. But hey, it's a democracy. They won some primaries. And I thought we did a pretty good job, honestly, on the Republican side of channeling them into the party and into more responsible roles. I thought Marco Rubio could be the future of that kind of Tea Party insurgency. It turned out that, yeah, Palin's personal flaws turned out to be much more replicated than I realized. So, I, yeah, I'm not going to say she would have been a great vice president. I don't think all the Democrats who supported John Edwards in 2004 as the vice presidential nominee probably think he would have been a great vice president either. But <laughs> Fair point. No, but I, th I think this sort of taking responsibility thing is a little uh, fake, honestly. I mean, I'm for taking responsibility for what you should take responsibility for. I just think the attempt to sort of, this is a party that nominated in my adult lifetime, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole, George W. Bush, John McCain, and Mitt Romney. I am totally comfortable with having defended those people. But in, in some ways, Palin was a harbinger of this anti-intellectual hero. At what point did, yeah. did folks in your orbit realize that, wow, this could grow? Well, she quit as governor in 2009. We all said goodbye to her. And she was a nobody by 2011 or 12. But yes, I agree she was a bit of a harbinger. There's always been anti-intellectualism on the outside. And we should have seen it perhaps that it would grow more than it did. But, but Trump also, I think, came out of the blue. He didn't really owe Sarah Palin a heck of a lot, you know? I'm going to ask you a personal question. It is something that I have long wondered about your approach to argument. Because often 
when you're challenged, especially from the left, there is this air of uh, the, this moral high road that people take. And I'm thinking especially about people like Bill Maher or others in his vein who don't just attack on ideas but attack you as being over-intellectual and intellectualizing something as serious as invading Iraq. And never once have I heard you offer an emotive counter and say that your family has had skin in the game. You have a son who served in, in Afghanistan, some of the toughest fighting around Sangin. And never once have you invoked that in making an argument uh, that you legitimately could ground in the idea that you have risked something. Why do you not bring that kind of thing to the table? Well, it's kind of you to, to mention him, and I'm we're very proud of his service. I, I don't think I should get any credit for his service. Honestly, it was his decision, and you know I don't want to in any way trade off that to justify my foreign policy views, which could be right and could be wrong. I have friends who've had sons and uh, daughters, for that matter, serve in Iraq and Afghanistan who were against the war. I have friends who've served who, who were against the war. It doesn't really prove anything. Uh, it proves that our son wanted to serve his country and, and did so courageously. And so I'm proud of that. But I, I don't really think it's that healthy to have these kinds of everyone playing the kind of card of, well, I have a relative who served or something as a way of proving that you're right or or wrong. So I, I don't think it's really appropriate. These are serious decisions. They need to be argued out intellectually. I've been wrong about my share of things. And, and a lot of things are just very hard to get right, honestly. And uh, there are people who do deserve to be denounced, I think, because they really say terrible thing. I think Donald Trump is one of them about John McCain and about the soldiers who served in Iraq, whom he seemed to think, you know, had just taken things when they wanted to. But I think within the rational spectrum of debate, it's much healthier to have the debate, you know, obviously on the merits of the policies. I agree. And I I'm glad you don't trade on your family sacrifice, but I wonder if it's one reason the other side wins, because they use those emotive arguments and do not argue issues on the merits. Yeah, I mean, look, and other people do on, on my side too, so I don't want to be at all holier than thou about this. I don't want to do it. Maybe that's one reason I do what I do and edit a magazine and uh, comment on things and have never got into elective politics. And maybe if I were in elective politics and I were in a close race, I would be tempted to say and do certain things that I fortunately really haven't had to do. You know, other people have different pressures on them sometimes to play certain cards. I've been fortunate in really not not having to. What do you make of the the crop of freshman Democratic congressmen who have made incredibly risky political decisions to vote for impeachment as contrasted with the other side, the Republican side, where I don't think there's been a single act of bravery in this sad episode. So in 2018, I really rooted and did a little work and voted for Democrats to win the House. I thought it was important to check Trump. That was the main thing. I thought it was very dangerous to give him another Republican Congress to acquiesce in everything he was doing. I think that turned out to be vindicated by impeachment uh, and by other things. But I also was impressed. I got to know, therefore, since I was vaguely saying nice things about the Democrats in general, I got to know some of those candidates. They were very impressive. I mean, I said this to a lot of people and they thought, oh, come on, you're just being sort of charm because 
uh, I don't know why, but they really had a good crop of candidates. Republicans have had sort of the opposite problem, honestly, in 2018, certainly, and it's happening again this year. Who wants to run a party that's headed by Trump? And look at the retirements. Look how many good people have left. You would have seen a different house. It wasn't great. That is a case where the rot was already pretty deep, honestly. And But to watch that debate on impeachment, what was most striking to me was the Democrats thought, okay, this is a serious moment. We have to you know, give a, some version of a serious argument as to why the president of the United States has gone over the line and has to be impeached and should be removed from office. The Republicans didn't even feel, the huge majority of them, any need to sort of make any kind of substantive argument. And it was just pure demagoguery and a lot performance. of performance and playing to the base. And yep. It really is a party in that respect that has internalized Trump and Trumpism, not just as an ideology, as you were saying before, which is important, but as a kind of affect and as a way of doing politics and denigrating the opposition and, and just creating your alternate reality and pretending it's as true as the real reality. That, all of that is very dangerous. And I'm therefore, I think that for short, medium term, the, the hopes of the country rest with the Democratic Party. And I have a big interest in having a better Democratic Party rather than a, a less responsible one. And I feel good about the younger members of Congress. There, honestly, is very little I hope for more in American politics than a Republican Party that is resurgent, finds its moral center, and can be that counter that acts in good faith. We don't have that now, and that is bad for everybody. Bill, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. It's great talking to you. Thanks again to Bill Crystal for joining me. Bill is the host of Conversations with Bill Crystal, a video and podcast series, and he is the director of the conservative advocacy organization Defending Democracy Together. Today, Bill talked about the importance of having two balanced and responsible political parties, and we wanted to hear from you, so we asked what you think is the biggest obstacle our country faces in achieving that balance. Hi, I'm Isabel Robertson, producer of Burn the Boats. We got some great comments from folks on social media in response to this episode's discussion prompt, so I'm in the studio here to read off some of my favorites. At Justin Carr Ohio on Twitter says that gerrymandering is the biggest obstacle to balanced parties. Quote, safe districts mean the election is decided in a primary where candidates push to the extreme of the base. At Grace Schuss on Twitter thinks the problems are, quote, lack of term limits, failure of checks and balances, failure to require candidates to meet a set of standards, including psychological fitness and security screening. Andy Dufresne tweeted, I'm starting to believe it might be Facebook. Meanwhile, over on Facebook, Donald Adams called out money in politics and lobbying. Donald wasn't the only one who pointed to money as the issue. Joanna Clancy said, quote, dark money must be removed from politics. Larry Rudd agreed, saying, quote, I echo the other's concerns of endless dark money. He also expressed concerns that, quote, being a politician has become a lifetime occupation where there is no need to compromise with others, just keep stoking the divide. Multiple people called out the two-party system itself as the issue. On Twitter, at a book nut said, quote, the problem is the two-party system itself. People wind up being loyal to one party and rationalizing the extremism in it. At Eric Bronner 1 said that he looks forward to the day when, quote, the blue and the red team go the way of the dinosaurs. Well, Eric, you especially should stay tuned for our next episode. You can join in the conversation yourself by finding Ken Harbaugh on Facebook or following him on Twitter at at team underscore Harbaugh. Next week, I'm talking to Paul Rykoff, founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and, more recently, founder of Righteous Media and host of the Angry Americans podcast. 
Paul talks to me about being an independent in today's political climate, about the role of veterans in our country, and about anger as a political force. And we want you to join our discussion. Do you think anger is a destructive force or a positive one, or can it be both? Let us know what you think by leaving a message at 216-245-5421 or sending a voice memo to burntheboats at evergreenpodcasts.com. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Our theme music is Climbing to Greatness by Cody Martin. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.